Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Burn by Books, a podcast for people who hid under their blankets with flashlights as children for that extra hour of reading. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. I will admit to being a bit starstruck by this week's interview. Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind was certainly one of the best and most timely books of 2020, and I read it already knowing that Ruman's work was my cup of tea. His absorbing and touching portrait of female friendship, rich and pretty, struck me as the debut of a writer to watch, and his second novel, That Kind of Mother, made good on that promise. On today's show, Ruman and I discuss the fallacy of writing from your roots, the pleasures of genre fiction, the genius of J.M. Kutsia and Kazuo Ishiguro, and why all novels are climate catastrophe novels now. I will make a heavy wager that his charm and wit and quick intellect will have you running to your local bookstore to grab up all three of his novels. Before we get to that interview, I want to recommend a newly translated work of Chilean literature, The Twilight Zone by Nona Fernandez. Translated by the incomparable Natasha Weimer, The Twilight Zone is a work of historical rememory an ethical and frightening attempt to recover the interior lives and imaginations of those tortured and killed during the Pinochet regime. Constructed as a fictional memoir of the writer's own obsessive search for the answers from those involved in the filthy work of tyranny, the Twilight Zone feels equally like a gripping and terrifying mystery and a dive into the historical record of Chile's fascist nightmare. The novel begins with an impossible truth. In 1984, at the height of the dictatorship, one of Pinochet's torturers walked into a magazine's editorial office and requested to confess his crimes. Known in the novel by the moniker The Man Who Tortured People, Andres Valenzuela did indeed offer the story of his evil work at the risk of his own life. And for Fernandez, his is a moral imagination that must be understood for Chile to move forward, to resist its fascist instincts, and to do so by looking directly at what must not be seen, what must not be named. The twilight zone of the title is the liminal space between life and death that victims of torture must inhabit. But as with the Orwellian history whole, it is up space opaque and unrecordable. Fernandez tests the bounds of the novel's imagination by entering that zone of historical forgetting and demanding that we enter along with her. As the Chilean playwright Ariel Dorfman writes in his review of the novel, quote, It is up to us to risk entering that history and its blaze, to accompany her into that terrifying landscape, and to try and communicate with its ghosts. There is nothing pleasant about having to confront our capacity for hurting others. 
but the ordinariness of the evil in the name of the nation-state must be named and marked if we are to battle back against that foundational instinct in all of us. I cannot and will not forget this novel. Coming up next, my interview with Rahman Alam. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce one of my favorite writers working today, Rahman Alam. In his three novels the, thus far, Rahman seems capable of working in any mode of fiction, in any genre, playing with tone and style to the point that each novel presents as if written by a completely different person. His first novel, Rich and Pretty, follows the stagnating relationship between two lifelong friends in their 20s. Lauren and Sarah, raised in a relative bubble of economic and cultural privilege, have come to the moment in their young lives at which jobs, relationships, and aspirations will ask them to consider the value of the childhood intimacy of best friends. His second, that kind of mother, is again absorbed almost entirely by female protagonists. This time, the narrative turns on an unexpected transracial adoption and the fallout from a seemingly selfless act. Rebecca, a white poet of some success, convinces a black nursing specialist, Priscilla, to help her at home with her newborn. After Priscilla dies suddenly in her own childbirth, Rebecca takes in her baby, ultimately seeking to adopt. The novel concerns itself with the foundational work of mothering, the endless, exhausting, sometimes debilitating work of childcare. But Rahman inflects that recognizable story of sacrifice with the complications of race and privilege with sometimes shocking turns. In his most recent novel, Leave the World Behind, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2020, the novel is at least on the surface a departure from his first two works in plot and tone. Amanda and Clay, white New Yorkers, rent a vacation home on Long Island to escape the city with their children Archie and Rose. What begins as a beautifully described portrait of benign excess, with the couple imagining their idol as one composed meal to the next, is upended when all internet communication goes down, with a final emergency broadcast message that leaves whatever disaster has occurred only vaguely described. If this is a recognizable story, as we certainly live in the newest historical moment of end-of-the-world narratives. It takes a radical turn when the African-American owners of the rental, G.H. and Ruth, themselves fleeing the city, although more urgently in the wake of the disaster, arrive at their home and ask for shelter. What follows is a narrative bundle of tensed nerves, a domestic drama that unwinds assumptions about race and privilege, and asks a question about the kinds of care that are due to strangers. It is a clever mousetrap within which Rahman places his characters. They know something profound and world-altering has occurred, but the drama is played out in the small disagreements and revealing conversations about issues of ownership and wealth, 
the hierarchy of cultural relevance, the kinds of privilege available to black people, what it means to be a parent, and what community might look like when the levers of privilege are no longer there to be pulled. As a novelist, Ruman revels in pushing the boundaries of how one imagines lives outside the limits of our own experience. In this way, he grapples with the most basic and enduring question for fiction. Can we know the mind of another, and what is our ethical responsibility to that other once we have imagined them? Welcome to Burned by Books, Ruman Alam. Oh, thank you. Uh, gosh, I, I could listen to that. I could listen to you sing my praises for much longer. That was so lovely and such a you know thoughtful consideration of my work. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for being here. And, and I thought we could start uh, with a, a little reading, if you don't mind, from Leave the World Behind. I'd love you to read a section from the beginning of chapter 21, which is almost at the exact midpoint of the novel. And at this point uh, in the story, it's very clear that a global disaster has occurred. Communications are down worldwide. And Rose and Archie, the children, have decided to walk into the woods. Um, sure. <clears throat> I think you've provided all of the context that's necessary. This is two, this is a brother and sister traipsing through the woods on a summer day. In the woods, you had this sense of something you couldn't see, no matter how you tried. There were bugs, dun-colored toads holding still, mushrooms and fantastical shapes that seemed accidental, the sweet smell of rot, inexplicable damp. You felt small, like one of many things, and the least important, too. Maybe, maybe, something had happened to them. Maybe something was happening to them. For centuries, there was no language to describe the fact that tumors blossomed inside lungs, beautiful volunteers like flowering plants that take root in unlikely places. Not knowing what to call it did not change it. Death by drowning as your chest filled with sacks of liquid. Rose felt eyes on her, but then she pretended often that she was being watched. She saw herself at the remove of a cell phone camera. She was young and didn't understand that was how everyone saw themselves, as the main character of a story, rather than one of literal billions, our lungs slowly filling with salt water. In the woods, the light was different. The trees interfered with it. The trees were alive and felt like Tolkien's majestic creatures. The trees were watching, and not impartially. The trees knew what was up. The trees talked amongst themselves. They were sensitive to the seismic reverberations of bombs far distant. Trees miles away where the ocean had begun to breach the land were dying, though it would take years for them to be reduced to albino logs. The trees had all the time the rest of us do not. The mangroves could outsmart it, pull up their roots like a Victorian lady's skirts, sip the salt from the ground, so maybe they'd be fine with the alligators and the rats and the roaches and the snakes. Maybe they'd be better off without us. Sometimes, sometimes suicide is a relief. That was the right noun for what was happening. The sickness in the ground and in the air and in the water was all a clever design. 
There was a menace in the woods, and Rose could feel it, and another child would have called it God. Did it matter if a storm had metastasized into something for which no noun yet existed? Did it matter if the electrical grid broke apart like something built out of Lego? Did it matter if Lego would never biodegrade without last Notre Dame, the pyramids at Giza, the pigment daubed on the walls at Lascaux? Did it matter if some nation claimed responsibility for the outage? Did it matter that it was condemned as an act of war? Did it matter if this was pretext for a retaliation long hoped for? Did it matter that prowling, that proving who had done what via wires and networks was actually impossible? Did it matter if an asthmatic woman named Deborah died after six hours trapped on an F train stalled beneath the Hudson River and that the other people on the subway walked past her body and felt nothing in particular? Did it matter that machines meant for supporting life ceased doing that hard work after the failure of backup generators in Miami, in Atlanta, in Charlotte, in Annapolis? Did it matter if the morbidly obese grandson of the eternal president actually did send a bomb? Or did it matter simply that he could if he wanted to? Thank you. I picked this section because, one, it really shows off the sort of gorgeous lyrical writing that you interweave in the novel with tense staccato dialogue. Um, but more importantly, at this moment in the novel, there's the suggestion that the Anthropocene, the time of human primacy, may be coming to an end. Could you talk a little bit about how nature becomes a character in this drama? I think that, well, I think there's a couple of answers. I think that like whatever is happening to the climate right now in our lifetimes is the defining story of that lifetime. It's the defining mm -hmm. aspect of history at this moment. Um, so that's just a given. And I think every fiction is sort of about this right now mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. e turning away from it is as much as is, is, is turning away from that fact is also writing about that fact in a strange way. Um, this is a book about the unknown and I am weirdly afraid of nature. <laughs> I think you can, <laughs> I think you can sense that in the book. Maybe like I'm, I'm frightened of animals. I'm puzzled by, the, the natural world. I live. I live in New York City. I live a very urban existence. I am. Uh, I am a sort of like I'm writing this book about contemporary humanity. Really thinking about myself as somebody who's just, in some way, cut off from my own humanity. In this fear of the natural world. In this entirely artificial structure in which my life occurs now and that is what it is to be human now and it's very different from what it was to be human even two generations ago even one generation ago you know like we've rewired everything you know i if my if our predecessors if our forebears could look at the stars and figure out how to navigate i mean i can only do that by looking at my cell phone yeah 
and the i i mean so the the kind of fear that's that's there in the kind of description of the 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 wild untamed aspect of it is also matched with i think what is the the novel's real interest in what the natural world is kind of conceiving of all of this as the fact that the yeah. trees feel very sort of alive and communicative and um and as though they are trying to work through the same um deep fundamental problems as the humans and i feel like that is a direction that fiction that's interested in climate um even one like yours that might feel hesitant or your own limitations in kind of entering that space but is still there's a kind of demand to imagine the trees as it were i think so i think that it's funny that you chose this section because this is one of my favorite sections in the book personally and also felt like a pivotal realization in the construction of the book because this is something I wrote after trying to make several drafts of this book work properly and I realized that so in some ways the efficacy of the book is predicated on like the inhabitants the fictional inhabitants of the book not understanding what is happening but the mm -hmm. reader having a sense of what's happening which is ex extremely difficult to do and the realization that i could simply have the book explain speak directly to the reader and not to the fictional people inhabiting the book was a uh, sort of eureka moment and i think this is the one of the first places in the book that that's really deployed where the book just simply begins to level with the reader and say you know that articulate what the book is actually talking about i think which is the climate and i, I think it is the climate i think primarily that is really what the book is about certainly as i conceived it um and it, this is the first moment the book just says that and <sighs> You know, this is my third book, and as you mentioned at the top in your introduction, like I, I think the first two books are very similar, but there was definitely a desire on this book to really push myself. Hmm. And one of the ways in which I felt that um, expressed was in doing what you're talking about, which is like, oh, well, maybe there's just a suggestion that the trees have some intelligence that we would consider animal. Why not? You know, hmm. why not? why not simply skip from talking about this cast of six people to talking about Kim Jong-un? Like, there's no rule. And mm -hmm. that's one of the most satisfying things about fiction. And I think that's what makes fiction so incredibly difficult to teach, because there is there just isn't any rule. And most teachers, as you know, assemble rules that their students sometimes take on faith and sometimes set out to violate. So, you know, in the beginning of the book, I write about smell so much in part as a response to this writer who I don't even know, but who is a well-known teacher and a well-known writer who apparently teaches that you can't write effectively about smell. <laughs> so what you see in this book, in this section, in like generally, I think, is my own desire to really push. And yes, push into the place where you're imagining a consciousness into nature, you know, or just imagining, you know, that you can write about anything, that you can write about the way things smell, that you can write about Kim Jong-un, that you can write about, you know, the suburbs. And also, I, I would point out that, like, I think, and I hope that the reader thinks that all of this is quite funny, because I'm describing 
suburban Long Island as though I were, you know, Conrad <laughs> in, you know, in the wild. Like, it's the suburbs. It's a couple of kids from Brooklyn walking through the suburbs. And so it's just... And I think that that context is really important. You know? Yeah, you have to remind fun. yourself as a reader <laughs> that this isn't like, you know, a a a lost section of the Amazon that yeah. they're sort yeah. of, you know, finding their way blindly through. And then, of course, you know, uh, Rose comes upon a house and you're like, oh, wait, they're just like a couple of, you know, steps away from other, other things. Um, one of the, you know, obviously, like the climate is is so intensely important as a point of crisis for your novel. One of the other um, crises is the that of um, capitalism or late capitals, just deep, deep inequalities. And Leave the World Behind is a bruising, I think, assessment of the extent of blindness that accompanies privilege, especially in the United States. The novel takes on this blindness to an extreme by asking Amanda and Clay, when the world tilts on its axis, will you still believe that any place, home, or space that you enter is your dominion? Um, will you talk about how the idea of a home in particular, owned, rented, became the stage for this dramatization of privilege? Oh, gosh, that is an interesting question. I mean, I think that that is like, in some way, that's my territory fictionally, and as a reader as well, I'm interested in um, the domestic, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's just sort of like, that's what we call this kind of work. I'm really interested in it, and I value it. And I think it's, um, and in some ways, like, I don't really know what else there is to write about besides home life. Like, I can't really conceive of anything. I don't know if that means that my own imagination is poor, but like, even the novel of the workplace is really kind of a novel of domesticity, right? Like, it is, yeah. Um, you know, like, that's like, that's what the workplace is. It's this weird artificial domesticity. If you think about, um, Josh Ferris's and then we came to the end. It's like a beautiful mm -hmm. book about a dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. um, and even the novel of like adventure, conquest, war, they tend to be about like the taming of a landscape in order to create a domestic comfort, right? Like I had a friend said to me that um, Robinson Crusoe is a domestic novel because it's about the desire to like, destroy the landscape and establish housekeeping. So mm -hmm. I think yeah. there's in a way, there's a way in which like, that's the only subject for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, well, Robinson Crusoe is a really interesting um, example because, you know, at what he wants to have the sort of comforts of home at, while at the same time wanting walls. So he yes. can say, like, nobody yes. else can come in. And you're, you know, the first drama of this novel is when the walls of the kind of outpost of this is our dominion are breached, but they're breached by the actual owners. Yes. And... You know, I think that, like, in some... I think the book begins with a sense that it might just be kind of a savage class parody. Um, and I hope that it is that, at least for the first few pages, and that people find that funny. Um, it's a funny thing. It's an easy thing to poke fun at, this contemporary 
feel striving towards possession and comfort and um you know the exertion of dominion that's largely imagined i mean they're fighting over an airbnb it's not like a it's not something that belongs to them by right Mm -hmm. um and that feels very very american to me and very contemporary like the the airbnb specifically is such an interesting phenomenon i've stayed at many you know we have we have young children less young every day but you know we have young children and it's just so much easier to vacation in a proper home where you can keep a bowl of bananas and they can you get up at 5 30 and turn on the tv and all of that stuff and so i've spent time as i think a lot of people have at this point in these spaces that don't really belong to you Mm. or are sort of like calculated to feel anonymous enough that you can feel comfortable in them and there's something really interesting about that to me and um, not too many photos you can't have too many photos yeah you can't betray (laughs) the sense of the actual person who owns this place and yet you know that ownership is everything that possession is everything or so we tell ourselves we tell ourselves that that's one of the foundational myths of this culture is that to own our, look our entire economy is based on home ownership mm-hmm. you know like the notion of the whole it, it seems very very tied in to me to a foundational myth of this country of the homesteader mm. setting out into the west um, into a place that we conceive of as not having belonged to anybody which is obviously patently untrue and building a home and conquering the land and you know when you write about this stuff from the vantage of the 21st century you can make it all comic and i think you know i i I, again i go back to the the fact that i think this is all really comic and it's played for as absurd as we know it to be but it also i think it brings up something for people i think I, i I think it feels true. I think it feels um, it it articulates how I feel as a middle class person. You know, like you barely are holding on to anything, and you're fighting over what you have. Yes, and the and the the comedy of it feels so painful, especially in um, the kind of conversations between Amanda and Clay about whether how much ownership they should go ahead and claim of this place that is just absolutely by any rights not theirs um and yet they still even knowing that there's this like destructive thing that's happened out there um they still want to have the conversation about ownership and and in particular i think because um gh and ruth are black it gives them license to say well do they really own it fundamentally i mean we rented it yeah yeah it's an extraordinarily funny turn i think um and that feels very you know again very connected to a lot of cultural myth in this country not exclusively this country but this is the country i'm writing about this is the country i'm writing from like we have i mean look at the conversation that we have around like um taxation and you hear people talk about like what they have earned or what is their right and you know it's all it's all absurd. It's all absurd. Like the idea that like 
the generational wealth of the Walton family is somehow morally upstanding is mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The the people who have the inheritors of that estate right now have absolutely nothing to do with the creation of that business. And the notion that like they have earned it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so then, and similarly the notion that um, it's a non-starter politically to talk about reparations for um, people of African American descent in this country, people you know descended from the transatlantic slave trade. That that's a non-starter. Also, it's like we just take these things on faith, mm-hmm. you know, and we just accept them. And I think it's really it's so absurd and so frustrating that I think you have to choose to laugh at it. And then the, I mean, those two examples you give both rely on a, like, just absolutely polar oppositional understanding of historical wealth. So we shouldn't think about the historical wealth generated by the enslavement of um, Africans brought here against their will, but we should absolutely think about the historical wealth generated by, you know, the people on Walmart or whatever the hell other place. (laughs) It's, It's a totally ridiculous contradiction. And yet, here we are. We live in a reality that is defined by that contradiction. And you know? and it, it the, one of the things that is so um, it it's such a it's comic because we look at it and we say this is so absurd in the novel, but is also so painful for me is the way in which the absolute privilege that this black couple has gh and and Ruth they are in some ways more um more prestigiously wealthy than Clay and Amanda, and yet they still can't trade on it. They still are yeah. are finding it impossible to have the upper hand in a lot of these conversations about ownership, and it just it hammers, uh, uh, you know, hammers so strongly the fact that privilege starts with um, an assumption of normalized whiteness as as the controlling feature of privilege. And I think your book like gets at that so deeply because when there's a crisis. You know, those norms emerge in this kind of gross and unequal way. This stuff is so embedded in the American psyche that it's very difficult to shake out of. You know, it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the kind of generic aspect of the novel. In her review, Carmen Maria Machado compared Leave the World to Be- Behind to Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, which happens to be one of my all-time favorite novels. Um, both are dystopian stories that forego many of the trappings of science fiction or end-of-the-world adventure. Genre is important to your novel, the end of the information age, climate catastrophe, and general global chaos are all there. Um, But this is, as you say, a domestic novel of manners in the same way that Never Let Me Go is really a boarding school novel. 
So how did you want to balance telling that end-of-the-world story with the desire to do what you do with your novels, which is to have a social drama, um, and in particular to give it a really limited vantage on what was going on outside this kind of tiny house? Let me just... <laughs> let me begin by saying that Carmen's blurb about Ishiguro is um, really dumbfounded you know i'm dumbfounded by that particular comparison ishiguro looms very large for me as a writer never let me go is very plainly a masterpiece um i don't think it's the kind of book i had in mind in the same way that like you don't have serena williams in mind when you take a tennis <laughs> lesson right like it's just it's not really you can't talk about your own endeavor that way it's, it's inconceivable Never Let Me Go is such an extraordinary book. In fact, I found it so affecting that I purposefully did not reread it for many years. I only mm. reread it um, last fall because I was preparing to review Clara and the Sun. And so I wanted to have, I wanted to be really conversant in the backlist, all of which I had read. I just wanted to remind myself of how those books function. Mm-hmm. Um and Never Let Me Go, it's an extraordinary book. As you say, it is a it is a dystopian novel almost after the fact, because primarily it is a school novel. It is a coming-of-age novel in which the this grim future is kind of like a small niggling concern. Ishiguro is a genius. Like I don't I yeah, I don't even really know how to talk about that. Um, <laughs> with respect to my own desire to fiddle with genre i think again it just comes from this feeling that on my third book i really wanted to simply go wherever i could and i think that i thought my second book was very different from my first and then it took a while for me to realize how similar they really were that they're both really concerned with the intimacy between two women um who are very the differences between those women is really defined by um, their status in a larger society by virtue of race by virtue of class by virtue of physical beauty by virtue of you know ambition like there are all these ways in which those women are different from one another but they have this very primal bond it's the same book twice right Mm -hmm. um i wanted to do something really different I mean, I no longer know, honestly, Chris, like where the idea for this book came from. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I, I no longer know. I wouldn't have said I was someone who cared about genre. I wouldn't have. Um, mm. I did read some some books that I can. I, I guess I you would consider horror um, as I prepared to write this because I wanted to understand the conventions of those books. But the truth is that that, those kinds of narrative conventions are familiar to everyone because they're so baked into the culture. I suppose if you were um, Amish, maybe you would be unaware of those conventions, but like they are built into cultural storytelling. They're familiar from watching Scooby-Doo as a child. Mm -hmm. They're familiar from reading or watching Stephen King films based on Stephen King's books as an adult or a young adult. Like it's just really a part of the culture. And, and Stephen King and Scooby-Doo are inheritors of these conventions from who I don't even know where Poe, like, I don't even know how long Mm -hmm. these things go, how far um, the genealogy goes back. So the trappings of genre here or the conventions of genre, tight chapters, oblique dialogue, um, this, uh, the setting, the bucolic setting that sort of turns horrific, the feeling of um, 
being kind of thrust together in an uneasy alliance with people you don't know very well. All of these are just narrative conventions that I inherited. And part of the reason they're effective is that people recognize them, mm-hmm. you know, in precisely the same way that you can turn on a stupid movie late at night, halfway through on like basic cable and get it. You're like, okay, sexy co-eds in a cabin. I get it. I know what's happening. I know the black guy's going to die first. I know like the blonde girl's going to take off her top. Like you understand that. And there's a pleasure in that recognition of narrative convention. Mm-hmm. And there's also a pleasure in what a writer can do to destabilize your expectations or surprise you. And many writers work in that territory of of taking narrative convention and surprising the reader i feel you like know? i, I feel like you, i don't know if you read mystery like agatha christie um mm-hmm. there's a great straightforward pleasure in unmasking the killer um but sometimes the killer is really not who you expect sometimes everyone in the book dies and it's completely baffling as to who committed the crime, as in her very unfortunately titled book, Ten Little Indians. Or um, oh, yes. there's a book called Murder of Roger Ackroyd, in which the narrator of the book is the killer. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that you just don't expect. Like a, a writer is always sort of toying with that to surprise you. I think it, I think it is true that that's always been the case that there's both been the kind of pleasure of uh, the reader's generic awareness um, while the writer is kind of pulling the rug out from under them. But this feels like a particular moment in which that kind of the fallacy that there was a boundary between quote unquote serious literary fiction and genre fiction has been cast away. Um, and there's been there is no longer a kind of um you know a a demarcation between who we think of as serious writers and those who work more um obviously with the trappings of genre fiction why do you think it's now that this has that this has happened because i can remember sort of in the 80s and 90s like that you know the difference in the shelf meant a lot the literary fiction was not gonna do so much playing with that genre world i think that there's a there's several factors i think one is that um I think that there's an increase. First of all, I think that there are writers more willing to acknowledge that literary itself is a genre governed by its own conventions of a certain kind of opacity, a certain kind of middle-class milieu, a certain kind of um, feeling of epiphany. Just as we can parody the New Yorker short story, I think we can acknowledge that there are is like a defining ethos of the sort of contemporary literary fiction, that it's white, that it's middle class, that it's domestic, that it has these kinds of insular concerns. So I think that's part of it. I also think that like in some way, in some way, as like as identity becomes a political minefield, we are seeing the practitioners of literary fiction retreat into the safety of the self. And so there's a contemporary fiction that is really only interested in the authorial self. And there are some writers who can find a lot there. I think Ben Lerner finds a great deal there. I think he's an extraordinary writer. Yeah, and there agreed. are many writers who don't come up with much. 
they mine the self and they come up with like a fistful of dry dirt. And I won't name the writers who I think are doing that, which because that is so unkind, but I do. Think you should write true. that as a blurb for one of them. <laughs> I actually did. If you, if you look at my publication records, you will find the book that I am thinking of, but I think that there is a way in which there's the safety in that, um, in that turn of fiction, because it insulates the writer from um, scrutiny. And I think when I'm, when I'm talking about this writer, I'm really talking about the white writer, because I think we are in this weird moment where the, the white imagination feels extremely fraught. It's extremely fraught, and it's very hard to imagine a contemporary white writer of any stature undertaking an act of real imagination across the political self because the stakes are simply too high. Hmm. You cannot imagine a white writer today wading into the territory of a self that does not look like him or her or, you know, yeah, I just, it's, I think it's, it's untenable. It's undoable. And I think in some ways, writers of color, writers who are people of color have, I don't think they have a ton of freedom necessarily, but you did mention that this whole conversation began with talking about Carmen Machado, who's a great example of a writer who is queer, Latina, and deeply interested in genre, mm-hmm. and in using genre to have a great deal of fun. Um, and that feels to me like it's, she has the she has the latitude to do that. I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe I haven't answered the question. No, I, the I mean, I feel like, well, first of all, her stories are just the most wonderfully surprising, like pockets of fictional energy that I've encountered in a long time. They're, they're just truly really kind of one of a kind things. Um, but I am, I'm kind of, very interested in and troubled by the fact that I think there's truth in what you say, that there's a kind of perhaps a new freedom for non-white writers to kind of have full and rich and um, profound um, imaginations um, on on the page, while at the same time, kind of the, the fiction industry seems to still sort of rely so heavily on the same kind of very reliably recognizable white imaginations and and white characters and middle-class lives. And perhaps we're at a moment where that's changing, um, but it does seem like this this kind of awful, um, disparate tension between those two things. We've finally said in some way as a culture, at least in part, you can have a full imaginative life now if you're not a white person. And at the same time, um, you know, the publishing world, at least in terms of like New York publishing world, doesn't seem to be changing rapidly enough to, to account for that. I wonder if it's also, we're so accustomed to reading the self in the work of writers of color and like insisting that they couldn't possibly have an imagination <laughs> and, and, you know, again, like, I do think that, like, the, the time that there, there's an interest in this writing that skates really close to the self on the part of white writers. There's not a ton of that writing on the part of writers of color. Hmm. 
There's not. There's not a ton of the auto fiction. I mean, can you think of an auto fiction of black womanhood? No, I can't. I, 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 Which is striking, right? It's yeah. really striking. And I think that part of the reason is that maybe a writer like Jasmine Ward finds it more liberating. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily call what Ward is doing genre, but you can't look at her last book, Sing Unburied Sing, and not see the presence of the ghost in that book and understand that in some ways it's, it is informed by genre and that maybe there's a liberty there that she introducing these things is understood to be using her imagination and not simply writing about the self. It really demeans the project of writers of color when we insist that they are writing about the self and yet it valorizes the project of writers who are white when we celebrate them for writing about the self it's a very strange very strange contradiction i that's the best i've heard that contradiction put um and it 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 kind of leans leads me perfectly into my next question which is um i have this i have this brilliant academic friend who works on asian american literature and she's described for me in the past a phenomenon which she calls the top chef problem for writers of color that is chefs of color on the show are constantly asked by judges to cook from their roots in order to excel in the contest against other chefs whereas white chefs are never asked to cook english or irish foods to show their roots she sees this as a somewhat um, identical phenomenon to how bipoc writers are called upon to either directly or indirectly write from their roots whatever that actually means it's a subtle but insidious form of racism in publishing and academia but because you don't principally write about say south asian characters is this something you have to push back against i mean what people may not be able to comprehend is that i am writing about my roots right <laughs> my roots are american and my upbringing has to do with my own personal like interrogation or immersion in um, american storytelling and in American storytelling, it's always about white people in a nice house with a sort of like very attractive white femininity, which has always interested me more than the white masculinity, um, going about the business of propriety, you know, <laughs> think about Leave it to Beaver and June Cleaver in her like incredible blue clay skirt and her high heels and pearls vacuuming this immaculate like mansion that they lived in like that's that is my story that is my that was my introduction into narrative and you know the notion that like i would have been raised in like with some connection to an ancestral village and like oral storytelling is just so <laughs> ludicrous it's so ludicrous if you ask me to like I mean, my parents came to this country in 1972, and all of my, I'm one of four children. We were all born in this country. We were born in a political moment that really celebrated, much more so than I think the contemporary moment, um, assimilation mm -hmm. and understood the power, the persuasive power of being American. Um, and that's exactly how we were raised. And so, the idea, it would be such a fallacy for me to write a book about the experience of Indianness 
in that that conforms to i think what the reader expects that to look like it would be just it would be an act of imagination actually hmm. um you know we didn't we didn't sit around in like we didn't sit around in our suburban house drinking tea and making rice my mother was a physician um you know i had like a upper middle class yuppie upbringing in the 1980s you know like that's true that's that so what you see reflected in fiction is so true and um the inability or the fact that we talk about it we marvel at it really does i think your your colleague is correct it really does reflect a very pernicious problem one that will be exacerbated as a as the rising generation of artists in this country who are people of color are not first generation, but second generation, mm-hmm. what, what possible tether do they have to an original culture? You know, I just read um, Viet Thanh Nguyen's two novels for uh, a review, you know, and it's extraordinary work, extraordinary imaginative work using the trappings of genre to interrogate identity but he came to this country from vietnam as a child like he still has a kind of connection to that even so he's a man at middle age now that connection is like it's primal and it exists but it is largely intellectual you know yeah it's and yeah there's this there's this crazy thing that happens that is i mean it's just it's fundamentally racist in which that primalness is assumed to be the the one driving um nature of a person who wasn't quote unquote from here and 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 it's not something that they're ever capable of you know um asserting as 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 secondary i mean to go back to ishiguro for a second you know someone who a perfect example who was always bedeviled by the fact that he was not allowed to to write about his very very british um experience and have that be um not an act of radical imagination but a writing of his roots and his self and he says you know japan is mostly a fabric of my imagination and and yet his readers especially in his early days wanted it to be the substance and essence of everything that he wrote and you see and you see the distinction in the body of work between the english work and the japanese work and the uh, uh, speaking of milieu not language obviously he writes in english but like uh, the works that are concerned with japan feel they have a sense of artifice to them that fascin- which is so fascinating because as Ishiguro's work becomes more and more artificial in terms of its plot mechanics, it, the later novels nevertheless feel lighter to me because they are more connected to his actual cultural context, mm-hmm. which is the United Kingdom, where he's lived since he was six years old. Like, it's so, so interesting. Like, you know, the early books are extraordinary because he is a genius, but they have a novelistic feeling to them. They have a constructed feeling to them. Yeah, I agree completely. 
Um, in the end of Leave the World Behind, um, like so much else in the story, much is inconclusive. We don't <laughs> know or understand what has happened to the world, and we're unsure about even the nearest futures for the families. What's clear to me as a reader is that the novel compels us to reevaluate the things to which we've given our time and energy and passions. So much of the remnants of modern life in this moment for Amanda and Clay and Ruth and G.H. is is quite lifeless. The skeleton of late capitalism appears incapable of sustaining life, at least as we would recognize it. The question that remains when everything is swept away is one that I think ties all your books together. How do we care for others? Strangers, neighbors, acquaintances, friends, and what do we owe to those strangers? Do you see this as a fundamental driver of your novels? And do you have any hope for a society that might emerge after the next great catastrophe? I wouldn't have seen it as a commonality, but that's, again, your remit as an academic and not mine as a writer <laughs> to find those points of connection. I think that this book is a strangely optimistic book. And I think that this book, as is the case with my first two books, is very pointedly leading to a conclusion. And I knew that conclusion at the outset of the endeavor. I knew the last scene of this, of both of all three books as I was writing them and was bending the action toward that last scene. The last, the, the, the final scene of this book is really quite similar to the final scene of the previous book. Um, it suggests, I think, that like the condition that we feel is so specific to our moment is maybe a universal condition. Hmm. You never actually know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to happen. And that's all the book is saying. And, you know, one thing we didn't talk about as we talk about genre, as we talk about literary fiction in particular, which I, again, I think is a genre is artifice. Like the novel is so artificial a form. And this novel in particular is, I think, very interested in its own artificiality. It's absurd what happens in this book. You know, the, the sort of the, the peak, I, I don't know if it's the climax, I don't know if that's how you would talk about it, but there's a moment in this book that is so artificial that underscores really, I think, for any reader who's not paying attention, who has been seduced by the quick rhythm of the chapters and the sense of foreboding into believing that it is a book that is obviously about the end of the world, which it is, but it is, it is not real. Fiction is not real. And there is a moment in the book that underscores that so plainly, I think, that then you, I, my hope is that you get to this conclusion of the book. This sort of the book ends with a question, and I feel like there's only one answer to that question. And so maybe that is all I have to say. Maybe that is what I have said across all three books. I don't know. You know, there's maybe there's too much pressure to land on epiphany. Maybe that mm -hmm. is like one of those mm -hmm. conventions of literary fiction that we are meant to deliver epiphany, and I have nothing to deliver except for well, you never know. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my epiphany you never know what's going to happen tomorrow yeah and the the way in which 
everything seems so highly um, peaked and dramatized by this one moment in their lives. Um, it it doesn't mean that that wouldn't be one of many peaked moments in in all of our lives in which we feel like the drama and danger and um, the unknown asks something different of us. And that this one happens to be a kind of end of the world, um, apparently, although it's still, you know, we don't really know for sure. Um, and yet the, the circumstance of not knowing what happens next, which is what draws us to novels and to fiction, um, but which is the most precarious about our lives, that we have to make choices, uh, big, uh, important choices about what we do with our lives and our time and our energies, um, not knowing what will come the next morning. I think that's true. And it's like, it's really unsatisfying. You know, the most unsatisfying novel would be like, this person was a good person and they got up every day and did everything right. And then they were walking down the street one day and an an air conditioning window unit fell out of the window and killed them. But like, that's just like the bargain of contemporary existence. It's the parts, but it's the, it's the bargain of life as it has always been. Hmm. And that is what is interesting to me. Um, randomness, fate, you know, the, this is just what it feels like to be alive. You know, have you, have you read the children's Bible? It, um, it shared a, a spot with your book on the, on I the know. short, on the uh, finalist list for the National Book Award. In some ways, I feel like there's some, there's some wonderful conversation happening between the two. Oh, yeah, huge. I, I absolutely agree. I read a children's Bible. I'm trying, I think right around the time it came out, it came out, in, I think it came out in April. My book came out in October. Um, and it's lovely. It's a beautiful book. I think Lydia Millet is a beautiful writer. There's a lot of humor that I love. There's a lot, there's a lot of shared sensibility between my book and hers. I think, I mean, if it's not, I don't want to insult her by claiming that, but I do think it's like a funny resonance. Um, and particularly with how, um, you know, with how the children are invested in, in very directly in, in Millet's novel and yours, there's the, the sensibility that that's will be the trajectory. Um, but they're invested with something like the, the heavier decisions that the adults are unable to make. Yeah. And I think also, I, I could be misremembering, but it feels like it's like girls in mm -hmm. her book who yes. are able to accomplish more than boys. Very much. Um, and there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of drinking in both of our books. <laughs> there's a lot of like, there's success. Adult, like, <laughs> yeah. There's just like adult abdication of responsibility and the interest of like the sensory pleasure of the moment. Um, another book that I would add to this sort of like set of shared concerns is Jenny Offal's book, Weather, mm -hmm. um, which I really, really liked a great deal. I, and I think, it. you know, again, a very different book in its strategies, but a very similar book in its concerns, you know? Um, and again, I think this is a concern of the contemporary moment. And I think that like uh, fiction has to grapple with that. You know, I, I think that we're, I, I also think that we're going to see, we already see it, it happens all the time, but a retreat into the historical fiction. Um, oh, you think so? Historic. 
I do, because I think that's what you do in a moment where you don't know what to say. We don't know what to say about Donald Trump. And so we'll say something about, you know, the Second World War or the 1920s. And we'll allow there to be some resonance and we'll extrapolate some meaning. But it's really born, I think, uh, sometimes of a paucity of imagination, of not feeling like you have anything to offer on that particular moment. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm sort of sad about that because I feel as a reader a, a, a similar sort of disconnect from uh, what are the imaginative possibilities of reflecting upon the now. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of lovers of historical fiction. I don't mean to disdain the historical as, a, as an endeavor. I think that it can reveal a great deal, but I think that it becomes a place of comfort, especially especially like as publishing has so failed American readers by focusing on the product the, or, or sort of valorizing the artistic product of white writers. So I think that there are white writers who are great, great writers who are keenly aware of that they have, that they possess this thing that is maybe not entirely by rights theirs and they don't know what to do with it. And so the, there's a temptation, I think, to talk about history because it feels safe. It feels like uh, it contains like a key to the present. If you write a book about, you know, I mean, can't you just imagine a novel of like corruption in 1920s New York City as like a great Trump novel? Yeah, no, some, you're right. Some clever it's... white writer could be like, this is called Get Away with Writing About Trump is by writing about Boss Tweed or whatever. And that's not Absolutely. that's not what the fiction needs and you know i just i want there to be i think i think so many readers want there to be not diversity for its own sake but like i want to see what other writers can do with the novel right now and i think there's so much that people can do and aren't being given the opportunity to do yeah i hope there's not a a retreat from that from that possibility I wanted to ask you about your um, your non-novelistic writing. Um, I had a chance to do a, a, a deep dive into your your magazine and online work, and you've written about some of my favorite living authors: Laurie Moore, Ali Smith, Hari Kunzru, Zadie Smith, Ngugiwa Tiongo, Samantha Schweivlin, Sally Rooney, and a host of other luminaries. You could turn the crew that you've written about into a syllabus of contemporary literature and teach it for the next 20 years. Do you feel like the breadth of your engagement with contemporary writing has given you a, a sense of the novel form now or of the topics with which novelists are most preoccupied? Oh, no question. No questions. Just as it is inherent it is like on the face of it enriching to take uh, a class you know that you you to read to think to talk the opportunity to engage with books as a critic is obviously going to enrich my practice and it is like an especial bonus that in the role of the critic i'm talking about the contemporary novels i'm looking at what my colleagues right now are doing and um trying to sound out what's you know, not trying to compose some sort of grand theory of where the novel is today, but trying to look at each individual book and and understand its project. 
it's complex because as a novelist myself, you could argue, I think that it's sort of like ethically suspect. And in fact, I've increasingly started to feel like I don't, I don't, I don't know if I trust myself as a critic, or I don't know if I understand anymore what people want of criticism. I've done less of it recently. I've just published a big piece, but it's my last little while. I am not going to review another book until the fall. Um, some of it is just fatigue. Some of it is like a question of like what I'm doing in this business of working as a critic, but there is no question that it enriched me just as it would enrich, in, would enrich anyone to read Hari Kunzru or Zadie Smith. Like those are like enriching on the face of it and to study it and pick it apart and try and figure out how it works. Like the notion that I would do that and get paid for it. It's like even getting away with something, you know. Do you do you feel like um critics are limited now that you can't like true criticism is seen as 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 kind of gauche or um or you're just your hand is sort of stayed from from saying what you really think or is there something else about being a critic that you find um too limiting now? Um I, I do think people are a little it, there's a lot of propriety uh, that dictates what can and cannot be said. I think that it is work that should be done by people like you and not by people like me, people who are, you know, academics, who are thinkers, who are engaged in the work. I think a lot of times it goes, the, the, the plum assignments go to a novelist because of a sense that they offer prestige or, you know, that like they have more Twitter followers. Like, I don't know. It's so, de- <laughs> it's so depressing to think of it in those terms. And of course it's going to be, you know, it's difficult to inveigh against some book by someone who you might find yourself on a panel with, or mm. who you might share an agent oh, with, or true. you might, you know, and I try, I have tried. And I do think that I have lived up to the standard for myself of really being honest um, about what a book is doing and about, what I imagine its efficacy at that endeavor to be. And I have given very difficult, very tough reviews to writers who I really admire. Um, also, I think like just as a, as a side matter, we confuse the issue to give a tough review. I think depending on how it is done is a sign of the utmost respect, I think for the writer. Hmm. I, I gave, Zadie Smith a tough review for her book Grand Union, which I think is not up to her standard. She's a brilliant writer. It is not a good book. Um, I gave Ben Lerner a tough review. I've given Otessa Moshve a tough review. I've given Ali Smith a very tough review. I think that Ali Smith's... I am unpersuaded by the experiment of the what we call the seasonal quartet. Mm. Um, I do not think it is... I don't like those books. Like it's an extraordinary thing to sort of say that. And, but that's not what criticism is, right? Like criticism is not just thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. It's here's what the book is. Here's what I think it's doing. Here's where I think that experiment is wanting. Here's where I, you know, not like what I would have done better, what I would have, you know, it's not about that. It's about like, here's the text where are you know how do you evaluate it it's very hard to do and it's really hard to do honestly and um it's not easy to give a tough review i think it's Um, been it's been ruined a little bit by the endless endless terrible 
bookstagrams that everyone is constantly <laughs> giving a thumbs up or thumbs down or five stars or one star and um, and not doing the hard work that you're describing, which is trying to understand the project based on its own rules and its own expectations for itself and whether it was successful um, and the way in which it speaks to its moment or or fails to in some important way. Um, and so that criticism it becomes this sort of terrible um, mixture of those two things. Also, like, you know, I understand attention is currency and we have a finite amount of attention. And so there is a way in which we do need to know what is worth our time and what is not worth our time. But there is a value in reading a book that you think does not accomplish what it aims to or a book that you don't love. <laughs> you know, I, I did not like my year of rest and relaxation, but I think it's a very important book to have read to understand something that's happening culturally. Boy, and... I hate that novel, and I can't, <laughs> I can't say it aloud because it is such a beloved um, book. And I think it's it's precisely for what what you're saying. It's it's meaningfulness to the world right now um, is larger than it's good or bad as a as a novelistic venture. <laughs> Yes, it's important to understand that. But it's important to understand that there's a readership who are interested in what that book is doing. I think it's nihilist, and I think it's like reliant upon a sense of smug cool that I find very irksome. But that doesn't mean anything. I still need to engage with it. It doesn't mean I can turn my head away from that. You're, you're so. a better man than, than I in this particular <laughs> case, but I think I think you're 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 expressing I think in in the best possible terms the duty of a critic, which is why I hope you don't um, give up that work because having now read a lot of your criticism, I think it's it's really good and it's in the it's in the tradition of Zadie Smith's um, critical work, which I think is is also an extraordinary part of our literary landscape right now um oh, thank you i i always end with a question um for my interviewees about what what you're reading now and it's really sort of totally selfish i want a new i want information about new books and new authors and but i'm still going to do it I, i'm hoping you'll share with us um some of your favorite recent reads some things that are kind of off maybe the the beaten path and but that you might think deserve our attention um, yeah, so one of the liberations in reviewing a little less is the ability to read a little more promiscuously, to sort of pick up whatever catches my fancy for whatever arbitrary reason, because I've heard someone talk about the writer because I just am curious about it. So if I think about the books that I've read this year, not for review, but just for my own edification, I read a book called Jernigan by David Gates that I thought was just so extraordinary, so funny, so, so very funny, um, mm. so dark, so charming, so exhausting. Um, it's not always easy to read a book about, like, essentially a fucked up man, right? Like, there's a kind of, like, it's connected to a sort of mid-century form, but it's really extraordinarily well done. Really beautiful, beautiful book. 
I don't know um, it at all. I'll have to. I'll have to oh, find it. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, highly recommend. Um, Anita Bruckner is a writer who I talk about all the time because I just think she's a genius, and um, she has a book called Visitors. I love telling people what this book is about. This book is about an elderly widow whose late husband's cousin's granddaughter comes to London from the United States to marry and brings along with her her fiancé's gay friend and he needs a place to stay and so this boy tangentially related to like by strange convoluted circumstances to this book's protagonist comes to stay in her apartment for a few days that's all the book is about you should not be able to wring a story out of that Mm. and yet it's a fascinating fascinating book about you know family about intimacy it's oh it's such a devastating book i can't i cannot recommend it highly oh i i'm i have to read it it's i just i i forced a friend of mine to read it and he texted me and was like this he he said to me i began this book thinking like oh yeah anita bookner is a very capable novelist and i ended this book thinking like she is a wizard (laughs) and i think that really is that's really it um I have like those gaps in my reading, as I think everybody does. I had never read um, A Visit from the Goon Squad, and I was very intensely curious about it. So I read that book this year. Um, what did you think? I read The Ele- Um I thought it was an extremely well-designed machine uh, that was probably the first to treat. It was not the first. How do I say this? It's novelty, it's formal novelty is no longer salient, right? Like I think that we understand storytelling to be doing what that book is doing a little more comfortably mm-hmm. in 2020 than we That's did in true. 2011, right? And but at the same time you have I have to credit that in some way jennifer egan may be responsible for that change and so that's why the book felt important to read it felt like a sort of turning point for the expectation around what a novel can do um and it was very engrossing i read it in like one day you know like you just it's hard to put down Mm -hmm. um it's a book with a real purpose but a real heart which is also kind of not always it's not always easy to deliver both Mm, agreed um I met. I read the Elementary Particles by Michelle Welbeck, um, which I thought was absolutely ridiculous, and <laughs> I'm glad I read it. But it was like quite stupid. Um, <laughs> I, I read Don DeLillo's Running Dog, which is kind of a minor early novel that I don't think a lot of people read anymore. I've never even um, heard of it. Yeah, it's kind of great actually. It's about a dealer in erotic art trying to find a video, a, f- a film footage of an orgy in Hitler's bunker at the end of like right before his death. It's an ex- like bizarre premise. True to all things Delillo, it's like goes much weirder than even that little plot synopsis would suggest. But the best book I have read this year. I feel quite sure, although the year is not up yet, is Disgrace by J.M. Katsia. Um, I'd never read Katsia. I don't know what made me pick this book up at this point. Um, it is, again, like I'm talking about a writer who's won the Nobel Prize, right? It's a given. Everyone already knows this about him, but this is the great thing about books. This is the great thing about books. I, I think one should never feel guilty about what, what you haven't read. And there's something so 
astonishing to me that like you can at any moment find a book that just makes you feel the way disgrace made me feel which is like wow i can't believe what is possible with the novel it's it's so that, funny um, that that um that that novel is so meaningful to you and and that you just read it i'm uh that was the book that sent me to graduate school um and it oh, that's and, so interesting and it's the book that i'm currently writing about uh and it's oh, i, so I agree in, oh. entirely but because it's just not what it seems to be. It seems to be an extremely conventional novel that we've seen a million times over about sexual transgression at midlife. It's not that at all. Mm -mm. It's a book about the ways in which sex can become a metaphor for power, political power, interpersonal power. Um, it's so dense and yet so easy like you just sort of accept where the, there's something that the narrative control of that book is what i think blew me away the book simply begins like i it begins with the professor describing going to a regular assignation with a sex worker mm -hmm. and you just are from the very moment the book begins you understand who he is and where he is and what is happening and it's really an, a remarkable thing i think the language in Leave the World Behind, which we didn't really talk about, but like the language is meant to provoke and it's meant to actually irritate, I think. And so I think a lot of people are irritated by it, but maybe don't understand the how pointedly abrasive I wanted it to feel, especially at the beginning. Yeah. Katia, it's like almost the opposite, where it's just like, uh, this is a man. He makes a telephone call every Tuesday. He does this, and yet it's so it's done with such conviction. I don't know how to explain it, but there's something really powerful about the way that book is written. Well, his stylistics have been the you know the subject of countless dissertation attempts, in part because well he begins his life as someone interested in whether you could use computers to understand patterns in people's style. So he's a mm -hmm. PhD student at the University of Texas, and he's looking at Kafka stories and using, you know, early computer programming to try and understand style at the sort of like, you know, phoneme by phoneme level. And so I think there's there is a, a kind of computational magic in his style that's something that goes down really smoothly. I mean, you can just sit and kind of read uh, what you think is a straightforward narrative in you know an afternoon it's 200 some pages and yet there is such a profound well of thoughtfulness about fiction about the world about power about um so many important things um and it's in those little turns of phrase yeah it's so true. It's so true. Even in this, even in Disgrace, which has, um, what language, what, it has untranslated, is it Afrikaans? Is yes. Is that the language? Yep. Like, yes. Yeah. And, and it doesn't belabor it. And you actually don't even need to define it. You can understand what he's talking about it's um it's colloquial it's so it's colloquial right it's it's not it's not opaque like you understand that i think the word is combi and it's like some kind of vehicle mm -hmm. they're driving around mm -hmm. in and even and they're like in the veld the countryside yes the veld. yes exactly like it's like there's this calculation it's like he's you understand i believe that he has considered it and set it aside. And that's what's extraordinary about it. It's like the book is done with such confidence. It proceeds 
and it goes to a place that's so unlikely and then you end with like byron i mean it's just <laughs> nuts it's such a it's such a like unpredictably dense and fascinating book um it's one of the only books i've read in a really long time where i told myself to read it more slowly because i didn't want it to be over I well, we are we are on the same page literally with that book, um, and I'm and I'm so glad to have gotten to talk about that book and all these others with you. It's been really a delight. Um, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today's show. I am so grateful to Ruman Alam for such a rich and engaging conversation. You can find his list of recommendations, as well as links to his own novels, at burnedbybooks.com, where you can purchase each of them through the fabulous Buffalo Street Books, Ithaca's co-op bookstore. As always, I'm thankful to all of you who take the time to listen to this podcast. There are exciting things coming in the summer months, including more fabulous guests and a specially designed Burned by Books t-shirt, which I think you'll love. I'll talk with you soon. This has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.